calvarychapelgreeley.org on the website, the e-bulletin, all of that is there, the latest teachings, all the announcements. Don't want you to miss anything. This morning, Matthew chapter 23, if you'll turn there for our Bible study, we're going to pick it up at verse 37. That's where we kind of left off last time. And then we're going to move into chapter 24 and what is called, as many of you know, the Olivet Discourse. But we're going to begin in verse 37 of chapter 23 of Matthew. First book of the New Testament, of course. We've been doing this verse-by-verse study here um, in Matthew. Chapter 23. Father, once again, we just come and we ask that you would just touch our hearts with your word. Lord, um, there's something here for us, especially in the day in which we are in. So, Lord, I pray that we would be attentive, that we, we remember to turn those ringers off our phones, to be settled in our seats and in our hearts, to receive from you this very important section of Scripture that, Lord, will stir our hearts in the days in which we are in. So we just commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So at this point in our study of Matthew, keep in mind that Jesus is only hours away from being arrested and then begins a series of trials that will result in his crucifixion. And right before his arrest, Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, Father, the hour has come. And Jesus came for the very purpose of dying for you and for me. Matter of fact, throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus saying, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. Well, now, in his final week, he says, the hour has come to glorify your son, that your son also will glorify you, Father. And this is eternal life, that you may know, uh, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And we read that in John chapter 17, in that upper room discourse. In the previous chapter, we left off, with Jesus giving his last public sermon. He is now withdrawn from the religious leaders. He is withdrawn from the multitudes. And as he addressed those religious leaders in this this turning to the disciples at the beginning of the chapter, remember that the religious leaders have come to Jesus and they have come against him. Uh, They have been trying to corner him with their questions, trying to find a reason to accuse him to find a reason to hand them over to the Roman authorities. They have been asking questions about paying taxes and what about the resurrection and which is the greatest commandment. And we know that Jesus gives then, as he turns to the disciples, he then turns to the multitudes. They are within earshot of hearing what Jesus says. And he says, woe to them. Woe to these scribes and Pharisees. Eight times he does that as he knows their corruptness of heart. He knows what they're up to. He knows what's going to happen. And as he would answer them, he astonished the people who were listening to him. He would quiet those religious leaders. And as he warned the people, he said, woe to you eight times. And he also used that word hypocrite. And it's interesting, eight times in chapter 23, Matthew uses the word hypocrite more in his gospel than all the other books of the Bible put together. And as he exposes their hypocrisy, their corruptness of heart, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you lay heavy burdens on men. You do your works only to be seen of men. You devour widows' houses. You're like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the outside, but inwardly you're full of dead man's bones. Woe to you because you killed the prophets that were sent to you and now you want to kill me, the one that the prophets have spoken of. 
And as he would expose them, of course, Jesus, they have been coming against Jesus, mounting their opposition against him ever since his early ministry up in the Galilee region. And we know that Jesus here, as he then withdraws from the, the religious leaders, indicting them, he begins to weep over the nation. He laments over Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He had been speaking these parables with the withering of the fig tree, uh, with the other parables, that judgment was coming. And we know that it would uh, be Jesus, as we touched on it last week, as we finish chapter 23. I, I want to come back to it because it really sets the stage for the next two chapters of Matthew as Jesus will talk about his return. But let's read it once again in verse 37 of chapter 23, that Jesus lamenting, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I want to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So in the two previous, well, chapters 21 through 23, Jesus has really spoken some difficult and harsh words to the leaders of Israel and to the nation itself. He would speak of judgment that would come to them. But keep this in mind. Jesus is lamenting. He is weeping over their rejection of him. He is showing his heart and expressing his love for Jerusalem and for the nation. And I think it's important to consider this and what we see in Scripture as we go into this Olivet Discourse that's going to talk about judgment. It's going to talk about the judgment of the nations, the tribulation period, judgment coming upon a Christ-rejected world, persecution, all those things. And we can read it and we can think, yeah, Lord, you know, judgment's going to come. But Jesus here, as he has spoke of that judgment that would come within their generation with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., that he is lamenting. Isaiah in his prophecies that it says that Isaiah would give it with tears running down his cheeks. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet as he would give a message to the leaders there in Jerusalem that death and devastation and destruction is going to come to you as you continue to reject the Lord and worship your idols. We know that as we saw in Ezekiel on Wednesday night that in chapter 33 that's recorded that God would declare that I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Even in Hosea, as we're going through Hosea, the first three chapters of Hosea, the prophet was told, you go and take yourself a wife of harlotry. And Hosea did, and they had a child. Then they had two more children. Gomer did his wife, but it was out of harlotry. Uh, and she went back to prostitution. She went back to committing adultery. And the Lord said to Hosea, you go and buy her back out of that prostitution. And that's what Hosea did. He goes and he pays 15 pieces of silver, half the price of a slave, to bring her back. And in those first three chapters, as that's unfolding, then chapters 4 through 14, as we are seeing, that he has a very difficult message to give to the nation, the house of Israel, that judgment is going to come to them because of their idol worship. But what was going on? Hosea was allowed to, to understand what was going on in the heart of God the Father who was looking at a nation. His wife, Hosea, had committed adultery, uh, had uh, committed harlotry. And here is a nation that committed spiritual adultery and harlotry. 
And the Lord's heart is broken, just as Hosea's heart was broken. And how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I let you go? How can I stop loving you, is what the Lord says. Some of the last words of Peter when he was writing about the return of the Lord in 2 Peter chapter 2, that the heavens and the earth are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And the Lord is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. As we travel through the teachings of Jesus, this teaching, which is called the Olivet Discourse, because he's given this teaching to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, is the second longest teaching of Jesus recorded in Scripture, next to the Sermon on the Mount. And he will be talking about persecution, the signs of the end. He's going to be talking about the Great Tribulation period. He's going to talk about the Antichrist. He's going to talk about what's going to come upon a Christ-rejecting world, the judgment of the nations. And as I see the things that are going on around me, I cry out like you do, Maranatha, as we see the upheaval that has taken place. As we watch a nation, even this morning, that is collapsing to evil in Afghanistan, and the reports that are coming out that the Taliban is already raping women and beheading people, and there's panic there, and the evil that is spreading. We see that in Iran, that the hardliners are beginning to rise up to power. There's upheaval that's taking place all over the world. The pandemic, the UN came out just in the, this last week saying that when it comes to man-made climate change, change that we've entered the red zone there's no turning back it looks gloom and it looks you know desperate for us bad things are going to happen as we are continuing with the pandemic and all the things that follow that and economic upheaval that has taken place we wonder what is going on lord when we see these things happening and lord come back quickly we do say maranatha lord come I'm looking forward to the blessed hope that is the rapture of the church when the Lord comes for his church. I'm looking forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ when we come back with him as he sets up his kingdom and we will rule and reign with him. I look forward to the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem where we're going to be with him for all eternity. You and I as Christians, we have a glorious, glorious future. But I also know that as we are getting close to the return of the Lord. I, I think we are. I hope we are. I, I pray that we are. But as I consider it, I also know that if we are the generation that sees the rapture of the church, we don't know the day or the hour. Times and seasons, we can be wise. And we're going to see going through this discourse that we are indeed in the last days. And if the Lord comes for us in our generation, there will be people that I know and there are people that you know that we care for, that we love, that we weep over. We should weep over those who are eternally lost. We should weep over a nation that's getting further away from the Lord. And understand this, we're going to see this as we continue in Hosea. What happens to a nation that gets further away from the Lord, how darkness and evil just takes over. And we need to understand that. What has taken place? I pray that as we go through this section of God's word and Jesus' teaching on the signs of the end and of his coming, that it, first of all, it would cause us to be wise and discerning in the days in which we are in. 
we are told he will say, you be the wise and faithful servant that's looking for the master's return. That is not a suggestion. That is a commandment that the Lord gives to us. To be wise and discerning of the days in which we are in, but also to pray for those who are lost, that it would stir our hearts. Those who don't know Christ, because he weeps. And we see that in this lamentation of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, his heart is breaking. You stoned and killed God's messengers that would come to you. And how I long to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. And chicks, of course, they naturally run to their mother when there is danger. And the mother hen will spread out her wings. And you know that terminology, that poetic language in the Psalms. Lord, keep me under the shadows of your wings. This image is familiar. One Moses used in his farewell address before he died in Deuteronomy chapter 32. It is a picture of love. It is a picture of tender care and a willingness to die to protect others. There's a story I read, I remember a few years ago, the Dust Bowls back in the 30s in the Midwest and in Oklahoma. And this fire would run through this farm house and, and burnt the barn down. And as the farmer was going through the remains of what was in the barn, he came to a charred hen and he picked up the, the charred carcass and all of a sudden all the little chicks ran out from under the wings. And it's a true story that happened and that's what it's a picture of Jesus that he died for us, that we might be saved. And in this lament, Jesus would give the nation a promise. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you know that if you were with us in our study, as we opened up chapter 21, when Jesus came into Jerusalem for the Passover feast and what is called the triumphal entry, here were the people waving their palm branches. They're crying out to him this very thing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save now, waving the palm branches. But here Jesus is clearly is speaking of a future time, and it will be fulfilled. You're not going to see me again until blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as we read scripture and as we're going to talk about, it will be fulfilled at the end of the age when Jesus returns you know, to, to the earth to deliver Israel and defeat her enemies. Their rejection of their king at this time would not hinder God's plan of redemption. Jesus will and has been building his church just like he told Peter in Matthew chapter 16. And when that work is finished, he will return for his church and take us to heaven what is called the blessed hope or the rapture of the church when he comes for his church. Then there will be time of what is called the day of the Lord. Seven years of tribulation. It will begin by one coming on the scene who's called the Antichrist. It will end with the nations of the world gathering in the valley of Megiddo and Jezreel and the last world war. Jesus is going to tell us if those days had not been cut off, man would have destroyed himself. It's called Daniel's 70th week. In the book of Daniel, as for your holy people, Daniel, for your holy city, Daniel's people were who? The Jews. The holy city is Jerusalem. It's not Washington, D.C. It's not Rome. The 70 weeks are determined for them. 69 of those weeks have passed along. There's still a seven-year period. Week is a seven-year period. The 70th week of Daniel, where Israel is thrust to the forefront 
of what is happening and what God is doing as he will be pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejected world. We also know that at the end, he will come and deliver Israel and there will be a national spiritual restoration that Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 11. It's spoken all throughout the Old Testament. We covered it. Hundreds of verses that speak of the restoration of Israel. Uh, there's whole chapters that speak of it. There are those who come along and say, well, the church is Israel. Um, I don't see it in the scriptures. Replacement theology, that Israel has forfeited her promises and that the church is now Israel. Uh, those of covenant theology seem to forget about the, the major covenant that God made with them. But we know in Romans chapter 11, Paul speaks of it. Let me read it to you. That I say then, has God cast away his people? He's talking about his countrymen. He says, certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham and the tribe of Benjamin. And then later in the chapters, he's talking about the future of Israel. That he says, for I do not desire, brethren, that you be ignorant of this mystery. In other words, we can understand this. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning the future of Israel. Unless you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So all of Israel will be saved as it is written. Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The church is not Israel. And Paul makes a clear distinction between the church and Israel in the New Testament, just as we know that in chapter 37 of Ezekiel, the whole chapter is dedicated that they will come back into the land, they'll be planted in the ancient cities, rebuild them, God's going to bring them back, and he's speaking about a national restoration, and there will be a spiritual restoration. I don't see how you can get away from that. Somebody was asking me, you know, well, I think that the church is Israel. Well, what about Ezekiel chapter 38? Is Russia going to attack the church? He's talking about in the latter days that Israel, as you read it, and it's very clear to me, but there is that promise that is given. We know that Zechariah chapter 12, let me read it to you, that it speaks of it as the coming deliverance of, of Israel. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Who's that? Jesus. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. And in that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Raman in the plain of Megiddo. So we know that as they will be restored, Jesus Christ. This is when the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he comes literally, physically to this earth, we are going to come back with him. So the rapture of the church is when he comes for his church. The second coming, he comes back with his church. Jews says, with ten thousands of his saints. He will establish his kingdom here on the earth. There's the judgment of the nations. He establishes his kingdom for a thousand years called the millennium reign. So this leads us now into what is called the Olivet Discourse, chapter 24. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to, to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, 
Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So the words of Jesus that we ended the previous chapter that we just looked at still are on the minds of the disciples. He announced the nation is going to be desolate. That would happen within a generation again in 70 AD. Uh, he, he is giving this 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 lament over Jerusalem and it's on the minds of the disciples they're walking across the temple proper and one of the other gospels Luke gospel records that they come to him and they say look at the beautiful temple look at the beautiful stones that make up the temple Uh, and they would walk across the temple proper across the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives that was just east of where the temple was where they could look down on the temple And what Jesus said when he said that your house is left to you desolate, I think that they're saying, look at this magnificent building. Look at this temple. It isn't that bad, is it? That was kind of the response of the the leaders to Jeremiah, particularly when he said when it was Solomon's temple, the first temple, that he said destruction is going to come. They said, it isn't that bad. We have the temple. We're going to put our trust in the temple. This is, you know, the holy city of Jerusalem. And, and of course, that temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar. It would really strike them. The second temple was a magnificent building. When Zerubbabel came back and they rebuilt the second temple, uh, they came back after the Babylonian captivity. It was a very simple temple, not really grand like Solomon's temple was at all, but God honored it. And it became the center of Jewish life once again. Well, that temple stood for about 500 years, and then Herod the Great began this huge remodeling. Herod the Great ruled over Judea. He's called the Great because he's a great builder. And he began this huge remodeling and expanding of the temple to where he expanded the mount and the proper that, you know, that the buildings were on. It was, it was beautiful. One person said of history that you never saw a building unless you saw the temple there in Jerusalem at that time. Josephus, the Jewish historian, that he records that they began to remodel the temple in about 20 B.C. and would continue that work till 63 A.D. In John chapter 2, remember, there was two cleansings of the temple in the final week of Jesus as he went in and he drove out those who sold sacrifice, overturned the money changers' tables. He did that, the synoptic gospels write in his final week. But John chapter 2 writes about the first time that he did it early in his ministry. And you remember that as he did that, the religious leaders come and say, by what authority do you do this? And he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. They thought he's talking about the temple building itself. They're going, what do you mean? It's taken us 46 years to build this temple. He was talking about his resurrection. The historian Josephus goes on to tell us that there were stones 50 feet long, 20 feet wide, and 12 feet high. Now, I've seen a stone in the rabbinical tunnels that they will show you that's 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 10 feet high there in Jerusalem, cut to fit the bedrock. 570 tons, and they have no idea how they moved that stone and put it in place. You see other stones there, the Herodian stones is what they call them, that are 18 feet long, 5 feet high, 10 feet wide, and and you can't even place. There's no mortar between the stones. It's like a hairline fracture. Absolutely amazing, the architecture. 
cut to precision. You can't even put a, a piece of paper in between, you know, the cracks that are there, a, 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 a razor blade, a knife blade between the stones. You can't do it. On the southeast corner of the temple was the pinnacle of the temple, 230 feet off the Kidron. Our tour guide told us that the temple was about 23 stories high. Now, to put that in perspective, Lawrenson Hall at UNC, uh, up there on campus, I think most of us have seen that, tallest building in Greeley, it's 17 stories high. The temple was made with white marble imported from Europe, overlaid with gold, golden spikes on the top. It was written that you couldn't look at the temple directly when the sun came up behind you on the Mount of Olives if you were standing there because of the reflection of the sun against the gold. You could see the temple miles away, and it looked like a huge snow-white mountain with gold on it, built with limestone, the Jerusalem stones that are mined there, that the buildings all in Jerusalem were made of still today. And that's why it had a golden color called the Golden City. And all of that, it was a spectacular building. And here the disciples were saying, look at this magnificent building. Look at this magnificent temple. You talk about being desolate. And Jesus says, yeah. Not one stone is going to be left upon another. It's all going to be cast down. And that would shock the disciples. And as they heard that, they would come to him. They heard him say, you're not going to see me again until blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All this is going to be destroyed. And as they're on the Mount of Olives, they come to him privately. And they said, when is this going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, why are they connecting that all together? When is this going to happen? That is the destruction of of the temple and they equated it with the end of the age they couldn't see a world without the temple if the temple is going to be destroyed it's got to be the end of the world absolutely it's got to be your coming and so Mark tells us that it was Peter and Andrew and James and John those two sets of brothers that come to him asking him privately and now we get to listen in on this private briefing as he gives us these words here Matthew chapter 24 also, Luke chapter 21 and Mark chapter 13 are all parallel accounts of the Olivet Discourse. And you need to read all three accounts to get a full understanding of how Jesus answered their question. When is the temple going to be destroyed? What are the signs of your coming? Luke, as he writes his gospel inspired, he emphasizes the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. It would be in 67 A.D., about four years after the volunteer, you know, or the workers who were dismissed working on the temple when the temple project was complete and the remodeling expansion of the temple. The workers were dismissed in 63 A.D. and 67 A.D. The Jews began to revolt. Rome sent their general Titus Vespasian. He comes with the 5th, the 12th, the 15 Roman legions, they surround the city. They siege the city of Jerusalem. As the siege continued, day after day and week after week, there ended up being no food. As the people began to starve, cannibalism set in. Dead bodies began to stack up like cordwood in the streets of Jerusalem. Eventually, they started to throw the bodies over the walls of Jerusalem. 
After the long siege in 70 AD, they broke through the walls, and it is believed that Titus was told by the emperor not to destroy the temple. As many people had gone to Jerusalem as Rome was coming, many people there in Judah and around the area in Judea, they had gone to Jerusalem. They're in the city. They, they ran to the temple as they're fighting back the Romans, and they run inside the temple and the temple buildings, and in one of the windows that was lined with cedar, a torch was thrown through. And the temple was set on fire, and the wood making up the inside of the temple, it caught fire, and it was like an oven. It was so hot that it melted the gold on the top, and it melted the stones you know, the gold between the stones. And, and when Caesar heard that the temple was destroyed, he said, take a plow, just level the whole city, level the whole place, and they plowed it under. The Roman soldiers, they took these big pry bars and they tore the stones apart to get to the gold, to get to the spoils. And you can see that today. You can see the excavations on the southern end of the Temple Mount and where they took the stones and they threw it over. And you can see the stones actually in what is called the Terrapin Valley on this road that Jesus obviously walked on. It parallels the Western Wall. You can see the stones that were tossed over. It all took place exactly how Jesus said it would take place. And as we read through this discourse, keep in mind this, that as Jesus said this is going to happen and it took place, we can be confident that the very things that are yet future are going to come to pass as well. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. John, when he was on the island of Patmos, <clears throat> he was given the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. John, write these things down that must shortly come to pass. When Isaiah in the Old Testament began to prophesy concerning the day of the Lord and the reign of Christ, in chapter 2, that Isaiah, that in the latter days these things shall come to pass. Not that they might come to pass, or it's a possibility, or it's all just spiritualized, or it's just an allegory. It will be fulfilled every dot and tittle. Now, whenever something of significance happens, people begin to ask, <clears throat> when is it the end of the world? Are we actually in the last days? Are we at the end? You know, what's going to happen? Next month, we're going to be remembering the 20th, you know, anniversary of 9-11 when our nation was attacked. And I remember standing there at Ground Zero when I was there and ministering there and at Ground Zero, New York City police officers. And I remember standing there, it was still burning. At the end of the day, you'd just be full of dust. And, and I remember world leaders would come in to Ground Zero. And I remember particularly one, you, you probably heard of him, Benjamin Netanyahu, the longest standing prime minister in Israel. He just went out of office. But I remember him standing there with his entourage. And he's just shaking his head. And he said, you know, we knew that something like this was going to happen. If we would have said that on September 10th that the Twin Towers are going to collapse and not any of it's left, you would have thought then there had to be a nuclear exchange or the end of the world or something was going on. 
But I remember it changed the whole world. I also remember that for about two months after that, that churches were filling up. You know, our little church was filling up. People were wondering, is this Armageddon? Is this the end of the world? And then as time went on, people went back to the cares of life. They went back living their lives. People weren't interested. And 20 years have passed. And what I have found in the church today is a lot of churches will not talk about the days in which we are in. I've had more people, especially during this time, as we've been going through the pandemic, and they're seeing all the things that are going on around us, that they're saying, I want to be discerning of the days in which we are in. And I think there's a very subtle deception of the enemy that is telling Christians and even leaders in Christian churches that you don't need to talk about it. You don't need to be discerning of the days in which we're in. People that have told me that they went to their pastor, will you teach on these things? And their pastor said, we won't talk about these things. We won't talk about the book of Revelation. We won't talk about the rapture of the church. Or there's other views that come in and say, you know, there's no rapture. There's no millennium reign. We, we know all millenniumism, all means no. There's no millennium reign. The preterist view that this has all happened anyway. We don't need to be discerning. We don't need to, to look at these things. And I think the Bible talks about it so much. And it, to me, it is so clear. We don't know the, the day or the hour that the Lord comes, that he's going to come for his church. But we can know the times and seasons that we're in, that we're in the last days. And as we were seeing all these things taking place, Jesus said, when you begin to see these things come to pass, look up and rejoice, for your redemption draws near. And people are wondering. They don't fully understand. The New Testament says more about the second coming of Jesus Christ than any other subject. Why would you want to avoid it? As we go through the Bible, the books of the Bible, verse by verse, we will cover the whole counsel of God's word. We will cover topics that are in the Bible. We consider ourselves here at Calvary Chapel to be biblically literate. We're not better than anybody else. But going through the books of the Bible, you're going to understand the Bible. I think that's the great need in the church today is Bible study, to know the word of God, because there's so many ver uh, voices that are out there. And there's so much that can lead you astray and can lead you into, you know, just being carnal because it sounds good and it's pleasing to the flesh or whatever the case may be. And we want to know what the Word of God says. So in the New Testament, we hear about the new birth specifically seven times. That's an important subject, isn't it? To be born again. We hear about repentance and faith. Very important. We have about 20 references to that subject. We hear about baptisms, about water and the Spirit, about 70 references to that. When it comes to the coming of Christ and the things that accompany the coming of Christ, about 300 verses in the New Testament. It is by far the broadest subject in the New Testament, and the tribulation period is the most documented you know, period of time that is, is given to us in all of Scripture, that seven-year period. You think we should pay attention to that? Yes, we should. When will these things be? What is the coming of the end of the age? People are wondering today. That phrase, the end of the age, is used six times in the New Testament. Once in the book of Hebrews, five times in Matthew's gospel. You probably are thinking, we've already seen it three times. In chapter 13, remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? The tares will be gathered and burned in the fire, and so it will be at the end of the age, verses 39 and 40. 
Then in verse 49, in the parable of the dragnet, at the end of the age, the angels will come and separate the wicked from the just. We will see it once again here in chapter 24. And then in chapter 28, the gospel ends with Jesus saying, Lo, I am with you always, what? Even until the end of the age. So each time that that is used, that term, it is speaking of the consummation of the age and judgment that follows. Which leaves a big problem, by the way, with the preterists that say that most of this was fulfilled in 70 AD when Rome destroyed Jerusalem. Listen. We will go over this. We will look at the signs of the time. We're going to talk about persecution. The abomination of desolation. The Antichrist that will come on the scene. The great tribulation period, as Jesus said, it will be great tribulation such as the world has never seen or ever will see again. The second coming of Jesus Christ. We're going to see how he tells us to be wise and faithful, discerning of the days in which we are living in. He will talk about the judgment of the nations. We're going to cover all those things to have a good understanding of these things and what is ahead for us. And as I've said, we're going to go over it so you can be discerning the days in which you are in. And you don't have to be confused that all the things that we see around us that is heading towards something, the birth pangs, is going to give birth to a kingdom that's going to come. And I want to know these things as we get to listen in on the words of Jesus, not that I can be troubled, but I can be comforted. When Paul talked about the rapture of the church, he said, comfort one another with these words. When the Christians thought they had missed the rapture of the church in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he said, don't be troubled in heart as though, you know, the, the, the day of the Lord had come. When it comes to the gathering of us ourselves to him, you haven't missed it. So all these things that we're going to talk about, is that once again, he reaffirms them that we can be comforted in knowing that the Lord's going to come for us and we got a glorious future. But may it also stir our hearts, listen, a couple things, to be praying for those who are around us that don't know the Lord. One of the saddest verses that is in Scripture is what we see Jeremiah when he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. They, he says, summer's over. Harvest is thin. And we're not saved. We're not saved. If the Lord was to come back for us, that there are those who are going to be saying that are left behind, summer's over. Harvest is in. And we're not saved. Although have opportunities, the gospel is going to go out in the tribulation period. But they are going to be heavily persecuted. And the second thing that I pray that it does is that it would wake us up. Because we are in such unique times. We are here for such a time as this. We are in unique times. You realize that we are the first generation, or since 1948, that the church in Israel is on the scene at the same time. We know that that's a super sign that we're in the last days of Israel becoming a nation once again. And as we are here, we are here for such a time as this, as the birth pangs, the contractions, the intensity and frequency is happening more and more. And things are changing so fast, aren't they? And we're going to see that as we go through this, that definitely, yes, 
that we can look up and rejoice because our redemption draws near. But may it stir our hearts. Listen, if you're playing games with your Christianity, this is not the time to go to sleep. Or as we've seen in the Old Testament, Hosea saying, how long are you going to be between two opinions? How long are you going to be, you know, dabbling in Baal worship and then, you know, celebrating the Sabbath and the feast and all of this? The Lord's not interested in that. If there are some things that the Lord has been dealing with you about, he's doing it because he loves you. And if there is carnality or sin in your life, you know there is. Then stop. And get right with God, even today. There's too much in Christianity that I can be a Christian, but I can live like the world and I can compromise. And it's not pleasing to the Lord, and he is not going to bless it. It is a deception of the enemy. Stop. And repent. And go to the Lord. He wants to use you in these days. He wants us to keep looking to him. He wants to bless your life, because he will not bless sin. And he will not bless carnality. And he says through Hosea, how can I give you up? Return to me. Return to me. If you're playing games with your Christianity, don't. And come to him, to the one that loves you so much that he hung between heaven and earth to die for you. And he did it because he knew that you would be here this morning to say, I love you. If you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, give your life to Jesus. Tomorrow's in promise to any of us anyway. Give your life to him and call out to him. That's the invitation. To come to him for the greatest need that any man or any woman has to be forgiven of sin. And he's the one that made atonement for your sins. And he's the one that rose from the grave to give you a living hope, to validate what he did on the cross. And the one who proved that he's the son of God. Will you come to him? You see, you can't save yourself. Don't think that you can be a good person because none of us can be good enough. But you come recognizing your need to surrender to him. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these words of, of Jesus given to us. And, Lord, heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will never pass away. And I pray that you would, Lord, just touch our hearts with this discourse as we go through it. To be the wise and faithful servant that's looking for the master's return. To occupy till he comes. To know that we're here for such a time as this. Not to get weighed down with carnality and sin and even the cares of life, Jesus said. That that day come upon you unexpectedly. That we be watching, sober and vigilant. To redeem the time because the days are evil. To not buy into the compromise of what... There are those who say that we can live like the world. To have one foot in the kingdom, one foot in the world, is such a miserable place to be. But to say, Lord, help me to live for you. And we thank you for your forgiveness and your grace that we can turn to you. So I want to pray, first of all, if there's anyone here that you've never given your life to Jesus, that he's calling you to come to him for eternal life and right relationship with the Father to be forgiven of sin 
to come to him as you are and say, I repent, I turn now, and I turn to you, Jesus, and I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I am a sinner. I believe you died for me on that cross. You cried out, it is finished. You did the work. You paid the price. And I now come in faith, and I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. Forgive me. Lord, I believe you rose from the grave, and I thank you for this living hope that I now have, for bringing me into the family of God, for this new beginning. And I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life as you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. Lord, I also want to pray for anyone who's here that you know the Lord's been dealing with you, speaking to you. Maybe there's something that he's been convicting you of, but you push it aside. Remember that that conviction is to draw you to him, not push you away from to know that he desires the very best for you in your life. And if there is sin and if there is compromise, if there is carnality, that you would come to him and say, Lord, I know you've been dealing with me on this. And I ask that you would forgive me and help me to live a life for you. Lord, we're so grateful for your forgiveness and none of us live a perfect life. We're perfectly forgiven. But Lord, you're calling us to live a life after you. Not play games with our Christianity, not to be between two opinions, trying to live in the world and it doesn't work. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. And to trust you in every area of our life, every day of our life, and to walk with you and to know you, to learn of you, and to experience that abundant life you have for us. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. For the days are evil and they're deceptive. And we don't want to have a lukewarm heart. We want to have a heart for you. Help us, Lord. Father, I thank you for the work that you've done in this place in three services. I pray as we leave this place, we would take you with us. That we would walk with you closely and keep our eyes on the things above. So Lord, I thank you. Bless everyone here as we go our way now. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.